This is the second Sunday of Advent. The lesson comes from Romans chapter 15, verses 4 through 13. Brethren, whatever things have been written, have been written for our instruction, that through the patience and the consolation afforded by the scriptures, we may have hope. May then the God of patience and of comfort grant you to be of one mind toward one another according to Jesus Christ, that one in spirit, you may with one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, receive one another, even as Christ has received you to the honor of God. For I say that Christ Jesus has been a minister of the circumcision in order to show God's fidelity in confirming the promises made to our fathers, but that the Gentiles glorify God because of his mercy, as it is written, Therefore will I praise you among the Gentiles, and will sing to your name. And again he says, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and sing his praises, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, There shall be the root of Jesse, and he who shall arise to rule the Gentiles, and him the Gentiles shall hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that you may abound in hope and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Continuation of the Gospel according to St. Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 10. At that time, when John had heard in prison of the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples to say to him, Are you he who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus, answering, said to them, Go and report to John what you have heard and seen. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear. The dead rise, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not scandalized in me. Then as they went away, Jesus began to say to the crowds concerning John, What did you go out to the desert to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Behold, those who wear soft garments are in the houses of kings. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who shall make ready your way before you. Thus are the words of the Holy Gospel. And a great big thanks to the Benedictines of Mary, Queen of Apostles, for letting me use their music as the bumpers to this series, as well as some of my previous series. So the line I would like to focus on is what we heard in Matthew 11. When John had heard in prison of the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples to say to him, Are you he who is to come, or shall we look for another? I think it's important that all the families listening to this, especially kids who might hear that, and wonder what was happening in the heart and mind of St. John the Baptist, have some answers from the Church Fathers. You know, the Church Fathers are unanimous. That means they all all agree, 100% of them, that St. John the Baptist had no doubt. Now, that might just sound pious to ears in 2022, like, well, of course, saints would say saints didn't have any doubt. But as I've said before, the water is coolest and clearest near the source. So if we want to know what the apostles meant when they wrote something, we should ask their best friends who were also in the unitive stage of prayer, the people who died as martyrs. And again, all of the church fathers are unanimous that John the Baptist was not doubting, but had a strategy in this. Let's look at what St. Hilary says. He says, But a clearer understanding is furnished from the things John did, and from the efficacy of the action the grace that was in him is evident. 
For as prophet, he prophesied by the very circumstances of his imprisonment, because in him the law became silent, for the law had foretold Christ and the forgiveness of sin and had promised men the kingdom of heaven. John had continued and brought to a close the purpose of the law. The law was now silenced, imprisoned by the wickedness of men, and as it were held in bonds, lest Christ become known because John has been fettered and imprisoned. Let me pause here real quick. What St. Hilary is saying is extraordinary. What he's saying is the entire Old Testament law is summarized in St. John the Baptist. The law is coming to a close, and all of grace is approaching. The church fathers describe St. John the Baptist as the morning star, the first star who's both in the night, the foreshadowing of the Old Testament, but also the greatest saint of the new covenant except for Joseph and Mary. We really have to understand how holy John the Baptist was. It's not just devotional. It's actually dogmatic that St. John the Baptist was washed of original sin by God at the voice of Mary when he leapt in the womb of Elizabeth. That's dogmatic, not devotional. And so even though all of the Ten Commandments continue into the New Covenant, all of the 613 mitzvot, the very small aspects of the law, those come to a close in John the Baptist, who, by the way, was from a priestly family. We have to wonder why he wasn't in the temple. Well, he was in the temple of the cosmos, partly as a return to Adam and Eve, partly, well, probably because of the corruption that was happening in the temple. So in some sense, St. John the Baptist, even though we call Christ the new Adam, in some sense, this is him under the stars living out original righteousness in the wilderness. So St. Hilary continues, The law was now silenced, imprisoned by the wickedness of men, and as it were held in bonds, lest Christ become known because John had been fettered and imprisoned. The law, therefore, sends messengers to behold the works of the gospel, so that unbelief may contemplate the truth of the faith in the light of these wonders, so that whenever it, the law, is frustrated by the violence of sinful men, may be set free by an understanding of the freedom wherewith Christ has made us free. So remember, just as, say, if one of your sons really took to a Dominican spirituality in the 15th century, or he took to a Franciscan spirituality, if you're raising a family in the 14th century, I'm not going to go into why most religious orders are bunk right now. But, you know, back then when all of these orders were totally orthodox and traditional, of course they all had problems then too, but they were at least traditional and orthodox, maybe some of your sons had an attraction to the Franciscan lifestyle, some of your daughters wanted to be Carmelites, other daughters wanted to be Benedictines. Just as in Catholicism, people would be attracted to follow one or another saint, St. Dominic or St. Francis, in the first century... Some of these men, because they were in very apocalyptic times, they knew a lot of things were happening in the world, some of these men would follow different types of rabbis, even to the extreme ascetical life of St. John the Baptist. So you had different men go and follow different rabbis, and they would often follow these rabbis because they wanted to imitate their wisdom and their lifestyle. Well, probably the greatest disciples, and remember some of these guys became apostles of Christ, some of the greatest disciples of the Old Testament rabbis or leaders were following John the Baptist because they knew he was the best. So we could even put it this way. The very best disciples of the Old Covenant are told by John the Baptist himself to go look at the leader of the New Covenant, 
to even go become disciples of the leader of the new covenant, that is, Christ himself. And this is why St. Hilary says, In this manner John remedied not his own, but his disciples' ignorance. For he had himself proclaimed that Christ was to come under the forgiveness of sin. But that his disciples might learn that he had preached none other than Christ, he sends them to him, that they may behold his works, so that the works of Christ may confirm his own teaching, and finally, so that they might look for no other Christ than he to whom the works give testimony. So that line from St. Hilary there is very important. In this manner, John remedied, that means fixed, St. John the Baptist fixed, not his own, but his disciples' ignorance. For he had himself proclaimed that Christ was to come for the forgiveness of sins. Other church fathers point out that early in the ministry of John the Baptist meeting Christ, when he said, Behold, here is the Lamb of God, we hear lamb and we think of something sweet. No, a Jew would have heard lamb and known this is a sacrifice. That's going to be a bloody sacrifice if you call somebody a lamb. So John was the disciple who understood the cross the best from the very beginning. He wasn't even worthy to untie the straps of Christ's sandals. So if he knew that Christ was that great, that he was the Lamb of God and God himself, he certainly was not doubting at this point. This was to teach his own disciples. You know, it's funny, I was ordained about 13 years ago, and there's only two things I remember saying from the pulpit that were error, probably technically material heresy. And one of these was, I taught, God forgive me, that John the Baptist doubted. So I take that back, I retract that publicly. Hopefully all the kids listening hear what I just said, that John the Baptist did not doubt at all in his heart. He did not doubt who Christ was. And I am sorry that I preached that at one point. The other error I preached was actually to a group of traditional Benedictines. I made a small error on St. Joseph. I certainly never doubted his chastity, but there was something I don't even remember. And it was kind of funny because I saw all the nuns do this little RCA dog head tilt when I said it. And afterwards, after Mass, I went into the refectory and I said, I knew I said something wrong about Joseph. And then they were giggling more. And I said, you were right. I did my research. I take it back. Um, and I am a Joseph Maximalist, just like I am a Marian Maximalist. But, you know, on that topic of Joseph's chastity, again, I didn't doubt that. He's certainly a virgin his whole life. But people do ask the good question, then why did he want to secretly divorce Mary? And this obviously doesn't have a lot to do with the, um, the readings today, but because we are in Advent, I think it's worth mentioning the three different theories. Well, I take the theory of St. Jerome, my namesake, as well as St. Thomas Aquinas. Some people call it the pious theory. Definitely modernists would find this way too pious, but I'm going to read you directly from St. Thomas Aquinas, quoting St. Jerome, on why St. Joseph had originally decided to dismiss the Blessed Virgin Mary. Listen to St. Thomas Aquinas. This is on his commentary on Matthew's Gospel. Quote, But according to Jerome and Origen, he, that is Joseph, had no suspicion of adultery, for Joseph knew Mary's purity and had read in the scriptures that a virgin would conceive, Isaiah 7.14 and Isaiah 11.1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of, it sh out of his roots. He had also known that Mary had descended from David. Hence, it was easier for him to believe that this had been fulfilled in her than that she had fornicated. And so considering himself unworthy to live together with such holiness, he wanted to put her away secretly, just as Peter said, Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. Hence, he was willing to put her away, that is, bring her to him and take her in marriage, for he thought himself unworthy, end quote. Now, let's point out also something on St. Joseph. 
you know, there's a approved apparition called Our Lady of America. And in this, we see that immediately after St. Joseph's conception, he was cleansed of original sin, seconds after. So only Mary was conceived without original sin, but St. Joseph, if we believe this private revelation, and I do, he was cleansed in the womb of any original sin. He was justified at that moment, became a tabernacle of the Blessed Trinity. We know the exact same thing happened for John the Baptist, except that's not from private revelation, that's from public revelation. So we know from public revelation that St. John the Baptist was justified in the womb, and we know from private revelation, if you believe it like I do, that Joseph was justified also in the womb seconds after conception. We do know for sure that John the Baptist and Joseph and Mary, of course, never committed not only a mortal sin, the three of those never committed a venial sin their whole life. Jesus and Mary and Joseph and John the Baptist were, of course, all perpetual virgins their whole lives. And actually, what I just read you from St. Thomas Aquinas, that does have to do with the readings, because we heard, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. That was from the Apostle Paul in Romans today. But notice again, the reason why Joseph was going to leave Mary was he was recusing himself from a mystery so holy that he did not understand it. And even though he never sinned, really didn't feel worthy to approach it. As St. Thomas Aquinas said, considering himself unworthy to live together with such holiness. And the last words we heard from St. Thomas Aquinas, for he thought himself unworthy. So Joseph is recusing himself from such great a mystery, not doubting the purity of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And then one more section on my sermon. I'm going to quote at length another saint. One of the books that I use for this Sunday sermon series is a book by Toll called The Sunday Sermons of the Great Fathers. And Toll has conglomerated all of the fathers speaking on the traditional Latin mass calendar on the epistle and the gospel. Well, one of the amazing things is we rarely have a look into the words of St. Patrick, St. Patrick who went to Ireland, but he is considered a church father apparently according to Toll. And the amazing thing is we have a sermon from him existent. I'm going to read that at length for you. But before I read you what St. Patrick himself, any of you who are Irish like me, should be on the edge of your seat to think, how in the world did St. Patrick preach to the Irish people? You know, following his evangelization, that island truly became the Isla Sanctorum. That was the Latin for Island of the Saints. And everything for the Irish from St. Patrick Ford, at least for 500 years, and maybe another thousand years, was very mystical. The Irish were a very wild group of extremely ascetical saints. Much of their monks, their ascetical lives reflected what had happened in Egypt in the 3rd and 4th century. Some of these Irish monks wearing blue paint like we see in Braveheart even went to go evangelize mainstream Europe that, yes, was Catholic, but had become very lukewarm. So many saints, so many miracles, so many mystical parts of the life of all these celibates of Ireland in the 6th, 7th, 8th century, this land of saints and mysticism, what really kicked it off? Well, as you picture this green island, picture St. Patrick preaching to these men and women who would one become one day become great saints. You know, St. Ignatius of Loyola, he talks about the two kingdoms, the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of Satan. But St. Patrick, he talks about three different kingdoms. And the three that he's going to outline in what I'm about to read you, the three kingdoms is heaven and earth and hell. And he calls this middle kingdom earth. Now, I find it interesting 
Tolkien loved the old Celtic languages, the Irish language. You have to wonder if he had read this when he called Middle-earth Middle-earth. Because for St. Patrick, Earth is this middle kingdom where we are caught between heaven and hell. As you listen to me read this sermon, you can almost picture three circles on a Venn diagram, and Earth has some overlap with both heaven and hell. We are caught between heaven and hell, according to St. Patrick. We have a decision between heaven and hell, according to St. Patrick. And we have sufferings and joys that are slightly reminiscent of heaven and hell. And so we are in Middle Earth. Very mystical term as you picture Patrick preaching this sermon to the earliest Irish converts. By St. Patrick, Bishop and Confessor, Sermon for Advent, from the book of the Three Habitations. Three are the abodes subject to the almighty hand of God, that on high, that in the depths, and that which is between, of which the first is named the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, the lowest is called hell, and the middle abode is the present world, or this earth. Of these abodes, the two extremes are wholly opposed, the one against the other, and between them is no bond of any kind. And indeed, what fellowship hath light with darkness, or Christ with Belial. But the middle abode has many resemblances to the two extremes. Whence it has light and darkness, cold and heat, it has pain and it has sound health, sadness and joy, love and hate, good as well as bad, just and unjust, servants and masters, servitude and dominion, hunger and satiety, life and death, and endless such similarities of all which the one half has likeness unto heaven, the other unto hell. For the commingling together of good and evil belongs to this world, but in the kingdom of God there are none evil, but all are good. In hell none are good, but all are evil, and either place is filled from the middle abode. For of the people of this middle world, some are raised to heaven, others are born down into hell, like are joined to like, that is, the good are joined to the good, the evil to the evil. Just men are joined to the just angels, and sinful men to the angels that have sinned. The servants of God are united to God. The servants of the devil are united with the devil. The blessed are invited to possess the kingdom prepared for them from the foundation of the world. And the accursed are cast down into the everlasting fire which was prepared for the devil and his angels. The joys of the kingdom of God no man can tell, nor even conceive or understand while he is yet clothed in the flesh, for they are greater and more wondrous than they are imagined or conceived to be. Whence it is written that eye hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man what things God has prepared for them that love him. For the kingdom of God is greater than all report, better than all praise of it, more manifold than all knowledge, more perfect than every conceivable glory. The miseries of hell, as they truly are, no tongue can tell, no mind conceive, for in their reality they are far more dreadful than they are thought to be. And likewise, the kingdom of God is so full of light and peace and charity and wisdom and glory and honesty and sweetness and loving kindness and every unspeakable and unutterable good that it can neither be described nor envisioned by the mind. But the abode of hell is so full of darkness, of discord, of hate, of folly, of unhappiness, of pain, of burning heat, of thirst, of inextinguishable fire, of sadness, of unending punishment, 
and of every indescribable evil that neither can it be told nor yet conceived by man. The citizens of heaven are just and the angels whose king is almighty God. The people of hell are evil men and the demons whose prince is the devil. The just are filled with the vision of the holy people of God and of the angels and above all by the vision of God himself. The evil and the impious are tormented by the sight of the damned and the demons, and above all, by the sight of the devil himself. In the kingdom of God, nothing is desired that may not be found, but in hell nothing is found that is desired. In the kingdom of God is nothing that does not delight and satisfy, while in that deep lake of unending misery nothing is seen, nothing is felt which does not displease, which does not torment. In the kingdom of God, everything good abounds and there is nothing of evil. In the prison of hell, every evil abounds and there is nothing of good. In the kingdom of heaven, no one who is unworthy is received, but no one worthy, no one is brought down to hell. In the eternal kingdom, there shall be life without death, truth without any falsehood, and happiness without shadow of unrest or change. In Christ Jesus our Lord, who liveth and reigneth, world without end. Amen.